Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com. That's L-Y-T-E.com. Today, the spotlight is on Chris Turpin and Stephanie Jean from the British rock band Ida May. Stephanie and Chris stepped into the spotlight to talk about their history in music, their history with each other, and their new album, Click Click Domino. The first single and title track is available for streaming most anywhere right now, and the album itself hits the streets July 16th. Dig it. We did it! Can you hear us? <laughs> <laughs> we did it. I can hear you. Can you hear me all right? We can, I, we can yeah. hear you, yes, loud and clear. Oh, what a pleasure to meet you. Good morning, good afternoon, all those things. Yes, afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, just south of Seattle, so it's uh, it's morning oh, for me. Lovely, very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is actually. It's beautiful. It's been uh, it's been not like Seattle. It's been sunny and warm and uh, very lucky. So well, uh, that's lovely. nice, man. We love Seattle. That's a pretty beautiful place to be, right there yeah, in and around there. Well, hopefully, we'll get you back out this way uh, someday. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I had um, I had the pleasure of being able to spend some time with the uh, sort of the, the visual uh, guide, I guess it would be to the um, to the new record, the sort of song by song breakdown, which um, I mean, I wish every artist did something like that. It's, it was so it was so uh, so fun. And so uh, it just added so much to the listening experience. Um, I really enjoyed that. Oh, great. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I don't want to belabor too much of um, of the history, but I did think I did want it to maybe give a little bit of context for listeners before we dig into the most recent sort of events and, and goings on for you. Um, could you tell me a little bit about how long the two of you have been playing together and making music together? Must be about um, 10 years now. Probably longer. Yeah, we afraid, met Chris. probably longer. Yeah, <laughs> we met when we were, yeah, what, 19, 19? Yeah. Uh, we were in a rock and roll band in the UK for a while and kind of underground, did kind of quite cool things and signed to Warners and that sort of thing. And Spent a lot of time in a splitter van around Europe. Spent a lot of time in a splitter van like everybody does. And after album three, it hadn't quite come together and we'd moved away onto this next project, which was going to be Ida May, which is what we do now, uh, which is named after the first song that we learned to sing together. And um, yeah, we're well, now here we are on album two and still carrying on so <laughs> and when did you make the trends like when did what, what's the what's the sort of founding date or founding year for Ida May good question I think it was around three years ago yeah three four years ago now yeah yeah we moved quite quickly because I had a lot quite a lot of songs I'd written that weren't that didn't fit in the old band and uh, we kind of demoed them up really really quickly mm -hmm. after we left our old kind of deal and band we had enough money maybe for a few months or something so we furiously recorded yeah, demos and yeah. in our little house and sent them out and thankfully very quickly we had another deal uh, kind of come together uh, so we were then in the studio quite quickly after that to start our first album Chasing Lights so yeah one thing that that really strikes me is how um, sort of fully formed the band sounds the two of you and and um i guess that's the benefit of having had the the, the musical sort of past to get to know each other and to to mm -hmm. to develop your um you know your communication or, or 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 your your interplay um but it is very striking there the you know there there's it's a fully formed sound a fully formed concept and uh you you were carrying that around for a while before you sort of founded the band I think so. I think, you know, coming from it, it ended up quite heavy with three records and the band ended up quite heavy and we played all kind of, we were just on tour since we were 19, basically. So I think being on the road that long and playing constantly in various venues and opening for different bands, you just form a sound, you know, especially with our voices, they just sort of blended. People always talk about the blend and 
we don't like to think about it because it sort of just happened and we're scared to think about it too much. Yeah. <laughs> I think we just got quite lucky in that respect in, in that we were, we just sounded good together very, very quickly. And Steph was kind of into the female side of the, the kind of, you know, early blues and country and, and English folk and that sort of thing that we were into. So we kind of complemented each other in that respect. And luckily we are on the same page, you know, 95% of the time so yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's because you've always made music together and it's all we know or it's because you know something greater something <laughs> something cool is going on but I don't know we've been quite lucky in that respect and what happens during that unlucky five percent uh we squabble like teenagers yeah, and then we, we get did. over it <laughs> <laughs> um how and why did you end up in Nashville that is a long story. So we were uh, in London and we'd started the album on one major record label, Chasing Lights. We'd had a, um, not a disagreement, but a, a, a passing of ways with them. Let's put it that way. And uh, very amicable. Uh, and we ended up finishing the album. We were going to do it independently, finishing our first album, Chasing Lights. Long story short, we got, were signed by Seymour Stein to Warner to finish the album. And part of that was visas to the US. Mm. So because we had management based in the US, we have fantastic management who are based in Nashville that look after some larger names than us. And so our we, agent was And our agent, our booking agent was there. So we just wanted to be closer to that scene. And we'd also heard of this burgeoning rock and roll scene because of the Third Man Records and... Easy Eye Sound and just a lot of cool little happenings where people were talking about Nashville at that moment in time a lot. So we thought, well, hey, if we've got the visas, let's, let's go. So that's what we did. Mm. Turns out that on the, on the flight when we moved from London to Nashville, that the person that signed us to Warner Brothers, their little label enclave was, um, was completely shaken up and everyone was dropped. Oh, that that day on the day we we flew on the we found out on the connecting so. flight in Iceland actually, <laughs> and, that, and that impacted you as well. well yeah, it gave us it eight is. hours to think about life, the world, and everything. Yes. So, long story short, we then parted ways with Warner Brothers as well after moving our entire lives to America. So yeah, it was but we were very lucky enough to. Now we're working with Thirty Tigers, which I think is the best fit for us. You know. Um, it's and we're really lucky yeah. that we could pick that up when we got to Nashville. So getting to Nashville was quite a journey. It yeah. was. Yeah. Did you, when you got to Nashville and you went through that sort of experience with the label change, did you have a record finished at that point or were you coming here to work on the record? We'd had the record we finished. We had the record yeah. finished. So the record was started on one major label, ended on another major label and came out on an independent label. Is <laughs> <laughs> what happened. <laughs> But to be honest, we'd had a lot of experience with labels since we were 19. And it, it was, you get used to pivoting your life, you know, because it's, it can just be tricky and we've dealt with it. We, we were lucky, I feel, to be as experienced. We never expect things, you know, it wasn't like that flight was like our whole lives has gone. You know, we weren't feeling like that because we're so used to these changes that we just sort of went, right, okay. I Actually guess we've got, got, got to change the plans again and like mm. find a different route, you know. So yeah, yeah. When when I think about that that age to come together with a with a musical partner, um, you know that that sort of is in the midst of that time when a lot of the music you're immersed in and listening to and passionate about kind of sets the stage, right, for the journey because you can then go down all the. You know, I think back in my own experience of picking up the record and looking at the liner notes and wanting to know who all those people were and all the other things they did and chasing all those those strands. And I wonder, uh, maybe we could start with Stephanie. Um, could you tell me a little bit about like what are some of your first musical memories or some of the first music that was like yours? This is, you know, not a parent sort of forcing you to listen to it in the car or this was like the thing that you said, "Ooh, this this is for me. Well, I think I grew up being made to do classical, so I did not made to do that sound. <laughs> like I was forced. I was, you were locked away. <laughs> I was locked away in a room, ready to play piano. No, I, I grew up playing classical piano and flute and did all my grades, and so did my sisters. I have two sisters. My mum is Irish and very musical, would always sing to us on the guitar and stuff. And 
And it wasn't until I was around sort of 14, 15 that I started really leaning towards the jazz side of, there'd always be like a jazz, uh, when you did an exam, there'd always be a jazz piece at the end. You know, you could pick a jazz piece if you were a bit kooky in the classical world. <laughs> and I'd always pick the jazz piece and then the teacher sort of said, you should probably think about doing jazz because you obviously prefer it. So I got really into, I loved Julie London and Peggy Lee. And then I discovered, I think it was, it was on like a free CD, which is going to show my age, that came with like the Evening Standard or a newspaper in the UK. Um, And it was Etta James. And I think it was a live recording of I'd Rather Go Blind. But I remember then getting like a big compilation CD of everything she's done or a huge... CD and listening to it on holiday and just being obsessed with that. And because it was live as well, obviously, she's quite, like, a little bit rude and, like, really, (laughs) you know, and I'd never heard anything like that before. And it was so, it really moved me. I remember listening to it just on repeat. So probably Etta James and then everything surrounding that as well. I mean, can we talk for a second about how cool it is that of all those newspaper promotions that the Evening Standard did, an Etta James <laughs> insert. That's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> I don't know if it was like a mixture of a load of different stuff. I can't remember. But I remember everyone around me. And at the time, you know, I, I grew up in South of London. Everyone was listening to Miss Dynamite and Black Eyed Peas and like yeah. all, like Craig David and stuff. <laughs> and I was just listening to jazz. And I, I was obsessed with Diana Crowell as well at like 15, which is a bit odd, I think. But <laughs> I just, yeah, I just loved it. It really moved me. Yeah, it took me a while to penetrate jazz as a teenager. I uh, my first sort of attempt was um, was John Coltrane's Africa Brass um, because I, when I was a kid, I was a deadhead, and they they talked about that record. Oh and so wow! I went, out, I went out and bought it actually on cassette. And as a teenager uh, in in the suburbs, popping that in, it was impenetrable. You know, <laughs> it was it was just. So, yeah, no, I, it, it, I mean more than like the Peggy Lees and the, you know, yeah, the, like, yeah. Washington's. I'm not so good at the, like, I couldn't do the old proper jazz, you know. Well, that's, a, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I had to, I had to take a route back through that. So I had to go to the, I had yeah. to go to Sinatra and those guys and then that's work my way yeah. back into the, to condition <laughs> myself. Um, <laughs> how about you, Chris? Do you have a, do you have a similar analog to, to that? Well, so it's hard to know where to begin really. My mom was a, single parent piano teacher and I grew up in church choirs and my dad as well was into rock and roll like British rock and roll like the Stones and Free and Zeppelin so I had this kind of weird um, diet of choral music you know English choral music and and British rock and roll really Um, but also you know my parents were really into people like John Martin Mm. who was a contemporary of Nick um, Nick Drake, if you know that record Solid Air, I know that album was on a lot in the house and I can remember really discovering that for the first time but wow. I think my dad would um, he had a you know, you send away from the CDs and you get sent five albums every month and you could keep two if you wanted or send them back I can remember doing that and picking a, I think it was a Rolling, St- Rolling Stones Greatest Hits free Greatest Hits and Shania Twain come on over <laughs> Um, <laughs> classic three yeah, we've all, you know. and I remember that, you know listening to that that free record in the Rolling Stones and thinking wow this is important and Shania Twain and Shania Twain of course yeah of course of uh, course but it was really that yeah that sense of ownership I was like wow so I I can do this you know like I can remember going to school and my friend was learning to play guitar and I thought man that is just so cool and this epiphany moment of well I could do that was yeah. you know a pretty big deal because of your mom, was piano your first instrument or did you stay away from piano? Would not touch the thing because my mom is a piano teacher. Yeah. yeah. So I, I play guitar um, because that's what everyone else is playing, really. Um, yeah. You can play yeah. blues in C pretty well, though. Yeah, I can play a few licks. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's like a, it's a prerequisite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is, it, is it safe to say, I mean, certainly reading through the notes that, um, that accompanied the... the um, like I said, that that sort of piece that you put together, the visual statement, I guess, if you will. Um, it seems to be that you're sort of you guys are you're 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 a road band. Like you, you're no strangers to the road. You don't, you know, you you you're performing musicians. Like you go out and you do the work. 
you live in the van or the car and like that's that's a mm-hmm. thing um and is that a fair statement or is it fair to say that's where you is it a snapshot of a time like how do you what's your self-image as a, as a yeah I, I mean for this the for the new album click click domino that's definitely how it was written because we didn't have any time to breathe or stop or think after the release of chasing lights there was no major label there was no nothing so we were just on the road and that's how we earned our living for the first you know three years was just in the back of a car touring with the you know guitars in the back seat and and in doing that, you know, in, in anything you try and write, I mean, we were just trying to, you know, capture moments in hotel rooms or having moments to try and breathe or think. And I was writing crumpled up in the back of the car on the notes on my phone. So this is kind of how this record came out. There was, you know, I'd love to say that we had more time to sit with a glass of wine and a grand piano and look out over the ocean and, you know, imagine this great escape. But in actual fact, it's pretty knee jerk. It was just here we are in this crazy moment. And the songs that were coming out were you know, we were trying to reflect what we were going through and some of that excitement because, it, you know, a bit like our first album, it's it's quite, uh, you know, heavy on the love love front. You know, we'd just gotten married and it was like, if we're ever going to write love songs, it's going to be now. And the second record, it's like, well, here we are doing this and this is what we're going to write about, you know. Yeah. There's a, um, you're certainly no strangers or, or, or you don't shy away from uh, really strong ballads. Like that, that's something that came through, uh, listening through the music and uh, I really love line on the page. Um, and I, I was so appreciative that in the notes you mentioned Ray LaMontagne because I would have been afraid to bring it up um, and, <laughs> as I fear of, I fear of insulting you or, or, or implying anything, but I could feel that I could hear his, his, his influence there. And um, I, I feel like a lot of, a lot of artists don't, don't mention him yet I hear his influence. He seems to be a, um, you know, sort of a musician's musician. And I guess that's a blessing and a curse a lot of times because often you don't yeah. end up being the one, but um, I really felt that there. And, um, and sing a hallelujah. You mentioned the string arrangement there. And I think the arrangements in general throughout the album, the, the a few things that struck out, first of all, the sort of the, like I said, the immediacy and the fully formed songs, like it's, there's a, there's a band there, even though it's the two of you with, with other musicians. Um, but the production, I mean, it's sound, the record sounds so good. Um, it leapt from my speakers. And I wonder if, could you talk a little bit about and, ta- and, and tell me a little bit about how the record came together sort of from a production point of view? Um, I had some assumptions after reading through the notes, but I, I, I wanna hear from you. Um, how, did, how did you actually craft the album? fascinating so you're one of the one of the only people that we've spoken to that's heard it outside of our kind of team at the moment Mm -hmm. so it's really interesting to hear you speak about the songs and which ones you picked out but um so in terms of the production it was uh so as we said previously our previous albums major labels big studios we had the budget and there came the, the time for album two as to what we wanted to do and we made the call because we've worked previously with different producers and what have you, that we wanted to self-produce the record, that we wanted to do it ourselves, that if we were ever going to do it, it would be now. Um, so we started to make some plans that we were, we planned to do it in kind of a dilapidated mansion house in Nashville. And we were going to fly out our drummer and bass player from the UK who we worked with on the first album. And that kind of all went to shit as these things have done across the pandemic. So we've been saving up all of our kind of merch money to buy some decent recording equipment. And I'm a huge uh, nerd when it comes to this sort of thing, whether it's guitars or microphones or preamps or valves. Or I kind of got that through the notes. Yeah. yeah. Whatever it is, yeah. A lot, lot, of, lot, of, lot of references to the equipment used. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's always taking, we were really lucky to work with people like T-Bone Burnett and, you know, Ethan Johns did the last record. And every time we're in there, Chris is there with the engineer going, so what's, What's that? <laughs> a little notepaper and writing it down. You know? Well, it's just fa- it's fascinating. So in terms of how we made the record, we had to we had to change and pivot. So we had actually come off the road. We played our last show at the the Alamo with Rodrigo and Gabriella <laughs> in Texas. We'd fallen out. We had this money. We were like, who knows what, what's fallen out. We'd fallen out of the tour. You know, the tour had <laughs> Not come, with each other. Come to a, to a halt. And... 
we had this money and we were like, right, we need to buy this recording equipment now before supply chains stop, before we can't get hold of this, the gear, you know, this yeah. sort of thing. So we sp mm. spent what we had uh, at kind of personal expense and decided that we should just start making the record then and there. So we've been living in a house in Nashville. The house was empty. No one else was coming back because of the pandemic. So we just set up the entire living space into a, mm. a, a studio, basically. Um, the dining table became the control desk. Um, the living room, you know, we ripped up the sofas for soundproofing and what have you. And all of these pieces of equipment we started to piece together. And because we're, we're such fans of Ethan Johns, who worked on our first album, who's an incredible producer, um, we wanted to still cut a lot of what we were doing live which isn't quite difficult if you still want to work with the band. So <laughs> I've been collecting these old vintage drum machines, these old Roland drum machines and Ace Tones. And, you know, we're really into some of those early JJ Kale records, like Five and, you know, Oki and stuff like that, you know, um, which have those old little drum sounds on. And we used some of those in the first record. So we decided just to work with those live in two or three takes and kind of slowly build the album from scratch from our front room, um, paying kind of close attention to the microphones we were using and, and having more time to kind of clash textures and timbres. We were really interested in, you know, using a lot of Americana sounds and acoustic in instruments, things that vibrate, like, you know, banjo ukuleles and little mandolinettos and resonator guitars, but combining them with more synthetic, uh, deep reach richer kind of fundamental tones from you know juno synthesizers and jupiters and and just seeing how far we could flex sonically and, and move those instruments and what we do into a kind of new sonic territory because i think although we have quite traditional influences what we do never sounds normal somehow no. <laughs> so we kind of played on that so anyway that's how we cut the basic tracks and then what we did as we had friends come over, like Marcus King came over and jammed on some tracks and Jake from Greta came over and we just jammed, had a curry and jammed. And then we ended up sending the stems over to Ethan and to our bass player, Nick. So Ethan Johns drummed on half of the album. Mm -hmm. So like uh -huh. lying on the page, that drum sound that sounds so Ray Lamonte, Montaigne is, is, is Ethan because that's him drumming on some of those early records. And, and that drum sound is part of what he does. Um, and then our, our bass player played in isolation from from London from yeah. London during lockdown in central London, and then it all came together. It's a in miracle the way you really, hear on the record. So, line on the page, for example, was just me and Steph playing piano and twelve string resonator live in the front room. In I think that's probably the second take, yeah. and then. But for for us, you hear it and you hear Ethan, you hear the drums, you hear the bass, and you think that was cut live in a room, but it wasn't. We were all 5,000 miles apart, which mm -hmm. is bizarre. It really does feel live. It does. It's, it's, it's a very... Um it's a very strange result given the way you... I mean, it's, it's, it's it very... Is. It's impressive you were able to achieve that. I think we've played with them both enough and they play together a lot. Um that that's how we pulled it off because and I, I think Ethan doesn't like click tracks so he's used to playing along without click tracks because some of the I mean Calico we did the speeds are all over the place you know because we're just going with it and then to try and put percussion drums over that I don't know how they did it I but. mean a lot, a lot of people in the pop world do this they send stems and they remix it's not often done in the sort of music that we we make so it was a huge risk but we had faith that they would they, we they also would, they would get, yeah, we totally know. trusted them and we didn't really give them any too many notes, pointers no. or notes or anything we just we know what they play will be what we're looking for you know we trust did did you send songs over as you were working on them or did you send a, a massive sort of file dump at the end yeah big file dump at the end <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that that so that is a leap of faith you didn't even have the ability to get some early feedback and say yes this is going to work no, nah, we trusted him <laughs> enough. Nick, we've been on tour with a lot as well, the bass player, and, and uh, they're, they're, we're great improvisers. Uh, yeah. Well, they're great improvisers, and we try to join in. But, you know <laughs> what I mean? It's, it's like they, they, they have such a... Uh, Ethan especially has such a natural ability and uh, kind of just gut reaction to how to play to things yeah. that trying to over-specify anything just wouldn't have worked. 
and that we trust them to get it right. And they're those sorts of players that can do that, you know, that we didn't need to give notes. He's an interesting, um, just as a, as a character, he's an interesting through line through so much music and, you know, through his family. And um, I don't know, he's a, he's a very, he represents something in terms of a lineage going backwards and pushing forward that I think is just, it's hard to articulate, but it's, it's, it, it feels true. And it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me um, where he shows up and who he shows up with and yeah. how that music actually stands up. They, that, that, I think that's a fascinating thing about the, the style in which I'll sort of say his family works is that it's, it's seldom if ever dated. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. And he's incredibly principled. I think that's what, what it comes from as well. That's what it comes from. He always sticks like it's, you know, it sticks to what he believes and he won't be swayed by sort of an A&R person or another outside influence. He, he always goes with his gut. Mm. Yeah. When you say principled, um, could you, could you codify that? Like, is there, is there a, is there a organizing well, principle around which he operates? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to speak for him but more in terms of how you approach uh, you how you approach the kind of uh preciousness of of recorded music i think that if we can speak about that because that's that's rubbed us rubbed off yeah know, on we're us incredibly about how you make music um i mean really you know it, it's becoming a bold and more kind of radical decision these days to record live in live takes so to record the the acoustic guitar and vocal at the same time mm. you know is 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 kind of seldom done in, in a lot of more commercial music and and recording live with the bands and and that approach and for example keeping mistakes and errors you know within within the records uh, and and thinking more about the emotional narrative and journey of that song and if you're fixing things within the take you know, you know, what are you gaining and what, in, what are you losing? It's kind of diminishing returns, you know, sometimes when you, you edit or clean or polish something too much. Uh, and that's a big decision to make, I think, especially when right now the way the music industry is um, mm. with royalty payouts and online streaming, it's tough to, to make the decision to make a very raw, live kind of guttural records because people don't tend to do that so much these days there are certain producers that do but but i think there's a kind of holiness in 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 letting music be made that way and all of our great favorite records of the past were made that way um so it's kind of yeah that's i guess what one one thing we certainly learned from it definitely opened our eyes as well to sort of or especially mine of listening to things differently like he really listens and there'd be moments in that first record where we would think oh we're out of tune here and he'd be like well let's re-listen and how do you feel like emotionally when it goes here and if we change that that would ruin that sort of thing and then I listen back to some of my favorite records like even like the Otis Redding stuff and suddenly you notice that the tambourine is so out of time but you've never noticed it before and it's all of that stuff or you break down like a Stones record and everyone's just all over the place. What is going yeah. on? So, so if you shored all that up and put its click tracks and made it perfect and compressed it, it would no one we wouldn't be loving it like we love it, you know. Yeah. So it's it's thinking about the whole uh yeah, emotional narrative of a song as opposed to is that in tune, is it in time? That sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Which and because we're lucky that we work, we're, we have our own imprint, you know, our own label. So there is no a and men for us telling us that's not going to get on the radio. That's not in tune. You know, that this needs to be louder. We don't have any of that. It's just us. <laughs> yeah, you talk about that sort of emotional resonance of, um, I think about it as like a tension, right? Like the, 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 the off note or the out of tune or something off beat like that adds so much to the, the mm-hmm. resolution. Um, or even lack thereof in a, in a song that, I mean, who would want to listen to the clean version of Exile on Main Street? Well, yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. I think that there was a quote I heard from uh, uh, the Carter family that when they were cutting a, a, a single in 1928 or something, and, 
Maybelle Carter, I couldn't listen to it because she said, oh, I made this terrible mistake. It's just awful. Just hear that clangor there. It's just terrible. And the A, you have to do it again, but I know it's expensive because of the shellac and da-da-da. And the A&R men just said, no, it's fantastic. People are going to hear that mistake and they're going to think, what is going to happen next? Yeah. You know, and it's like that, that, that excitement, like you say, that tension and release, you, you, you lose all that if you don't try and, mm. you know, cut it in one breath, you know. It's really exciting that that notion existed 80, 90 years ago in recording, right? It sounds so mm-hmm. sort of um, uh, modern and like indulgent, but I, I love that, yeah. mm. that notion. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you talked about someone that I just wanted to detour on for a minute. Um, Jesus Christ, Marcus King. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, he's a monster with that guitar. What? Can you tell me a little bit yeah. about your relationship with him, how that came to pass? Yeah. We were the first ever U.S. tour we did was six weeks with Marcus um, around the States in the winter, five shows on, one day off for six weeks. We were in a car with one wild friend called Albert. He drove us around. Um, and it was just incredible. I mean, we'd never toured the US like that. We'd never seen a band like he was playing, you know, four four hour sets every night and they'd just keep going, you know, and it was and they were they were just all so great and we've remained that's probably yeah. three years ago now. Yeah, we've remained we really close friends. Remain friends and he's an astonishing songwriter and and player. And singer, which people say that afterwards, you know, and he's like, oh, I don't really think about my singing. And we're like, oh, yeah, (laughs) you know, because it's just astonishing. So we we spoke about, you know, playing, you know, he he said he'd love to play on our record. And we said, well, we'd love you to. And because of the pandemic, everyone wasn't on the road and everyone was stuck in Nashville. So we were able just to invite him over. But he's in a Yeah, he's an astonishing player. And uh, an incredibly talented and lovely human being. Yeah. Yeah. And his his guitar tone works so well in the um in the tones that that you both generate on that album. Like it doesn't it doesn't have that awkward sound of a guest stepping in. It sounds so organic. Um, right. It's really phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I wonder if you strike me as um sort of being in that tradition of um of particularly English artists who sort of look at American music and American culture and absorb it and then sort of hold it back up for (laughs) Americans to look at and to hear how it's processed through your ears and experience. Um, And I know that's a very sort of American centric view of what you do, but is do, do you sense that or do you, do you buy into that lineage at all? Uh, well, I guess, I mean, on the whole, yeah, I mean, we fell in love with, you know, Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, who were all playing Chuck Berry covers and listening to Muddy Waters. So it's, it's one of those things where it's just, uh, it's hard, music is just kind of recycled and absorbed and shared and loved. And I think as well, just in Brit- British culture as well, there is always looking at America as the... Uh, the, the shiny big brother over overseas with refrigerators and nice fast cars and that sort of thing. It's a bit of a, you know, a hangover from the world war two kind of Brit yeah, thing. Sure. You know, there is a kind of, glamour. you know, glamour and idealism in this, you know, escapism because just because of history, this is just hit, hit you know, hundreds of years of history playing out really. And uh, so, yeah, we, we appreciate that. We really, you know, we, we do lean on, uh, you know, American influenced music just because we found it so much more exciting and mm. real. Uh, you know, like uh, early country blues records when I was learning to play guitar and listening to Led Zeppelin and the White Stripes, you know, suddenly hearing names like Robert Johnson and Blind William McTell and then going back to that was like unearthing some incredible treasure mm. <laughs> that no one has told me about before, you know. So I think at a very young age, we just absorbed that. And same with the, you know, Billy Holidays and, yeah. and the Etta James, like we said, and that sort of thing. And it just became part of, you know, um, what we listen to. And, and it's never really been, we, ne- we never really think about it because you just make music really. But we also grew up, you know, I grew up with a ton of Pentangle and Bert Yanch and John Remborn and Fairport Convention and, yeah. you know, all this kind of Brit side of things. Yeah. But really, as soon as you're holding up a guitar, you know, 
a guitar is kind of in popular music incredibly american you know and ironically it's a you know it's a european instrument you know made by you know european people in america and new jersey and new york and then this incredible you know art form has come out but i think about american music a lot in that because it is an um you know an incredible it's i think one of the most incredible exports america has and how the culmination of you know native american and uh you know black american and german and french and english and just everything and african everything that's come into the music is just it fascinates me the kind of ethnomusicological aspect of of american music so uh, in some ways uh, yeah we think you know we are playing american music but again at the same time you think of all the irish and the scottish celtic ballads that came over you know from the from the 1600s onwards you know, and that these songs have been kept and stored in the Appalachian Mountains and, you know, are fil- slowly filtered out into all these different places. I just find it astounding. So I think really we see ourselves more as just another piece of the, the patchwork or the on. jigsaw of what's always what, what American music is, I guess. And I think also because it is so far away for us, you know, I think if you are American and everyth- everyone is there, I remember talking to about our manager about us going to, you know, Muscle Shoals and every time we had a weekend off, we'd go somewhere that, and everyone would be like, oh, I've never been, even though it's only like two and a half hours from Nashville or whatever. It's always that sort of perspective that you get. For us, growing up here, I, I never went to America until I was in the band. I never thought I would because it's so far and expensive and you go to Europe on holiday if you can. You don't necessarily go to America. And then if you did, like my granddad would go to disneyland florida (laughs) and the idea the privilege of when you're there that you can go to all these places and take these pilgrimages to where this has happened and the music has come from it's just yeah i should should also say that in the uk i mean like you know there was a scene around the british blues boom and did a people think that was maybe a small thing but now john lee hooker with boom 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 he was in like the top 30 top 20 in the uk in 1964 it was a huge thing so the way we we approach American music in a much more beard beard strokey fashion, you know, like there's record collectors and people really listen hard, and they, you know, are very, I mean, yeah, very studied, studied in their um, American roots music and blues and that sort of thing. And I think I've appreciated that's not not so much the case in America. It's that you know, whereas in the UK we're real audiophiles when it comes to that stuff. So I think it's it took us a few years to realise, oh man people don't know that much about Muscle Shoals or don't know that much about Clarksdale or whatever it is. And, yeah. you know, we turn up thinking, oh, this is going to be so touristy. Ooh, like, it's going to be a tourist trap. Everyone, know, it's gonna be so man, busy. it's going to be museums, but we'll go. And then you turn up and you go, man, why is not, why doesn't anyone know about Muscle Shoals? Like, change yeah, the world, right. you know. So we're still learning and, and always, always learning um, when it comes to that sort of thing. Yeah, that that's really incredible. The the point that you make about um about sort of the music the musicology aspect of it. I've talked to a lot of a lot of artists uh from the UK um of across age ranges and that is something that that many seem to have in common. Not only about American music, but you know, reggae, um just what it seems like the 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 English music fan is very unique and uh <laughs> discerning and uh and expansive in taste, I find. I mean, to, to speak generally, that's. I know it's unfair, but but it does strike <laughs> me that way. Um, but another uh, something that that you both mentioned in passing, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, was the Irish music and the Celtic music and the and the songs maybe that 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 you were referring to, Stephanie, through your mom. Um, and it's so fascinating how you know again that music made it to America and into the and into the rural areas, and. Um, I wonder if either of you happen to know, at the same time here in America, we were documenting all of that sort of what was broadly called folk music and the field recordings were made and that and there was some attempt to go find and preserve that music. Was was the same thing happening um, in the UK? And are there are there recordings or what are considered sort of authentic recordings of the Irish ballads and things like that? Um. I've, I'm big, I'm learning about this at the moment. I've I've just bought two books on mm. uh, the border ballads and this sort of thing. So I'm going back further into that. But yes, there was a chap, and I forget his name. I'm just looking for it here. 
Um, oh yeah, you're totally I think there's the, the right there's the Rydale Folk Museum. There's a few, but there was a chap I forget his name that did literally go out um, before recordings of the manuscript paper and go to rural communities and collect songs and write them down. And that's how we have a lot of these melodies. Um, in terms of very early recordings. I know, I know Lomax, you know, the, the Lomax family did go out and do other countries and bits and places and pieces, but I don't know if they did, I don't know if they did anything in the UK, but no, that's something I need to look into more because I've read a lot of the notated music and read the lyrics and the words and that sort of thing, but I haven't, it's quite hard to find early recordings. I'm sure they exist out there, but um, yeah, I guess it's a part of American history as well that it felt those moments needed to be captured i wonder so much i mean you know there's a lot of people that say a lot of you know british folk music was lost um with the obsession with american music mm. and pop culture in the 60s because it just wasn't fashionable so a lot of it kind of died and that cross-pollination between the two countries and, and western music kind of just kind of morphed into almost a single thing so yeah i i don't know but i do know there is yeah there's one particular room where it's all been kind of captured and is kept but we haven't been in as yet because yeah. we haven't been around yeah <laughs> i've i've been i've always been curious as to how some of those artists that you you referenced you know like say a richard thompson or pentangle how, how those artists came to know those songs um, um i think a lot of it yeah. was through family and relatives like my mum I'm often ashamed of myself that I don't know and I will when in due time you know she just has a repertoire of songs that she knows just from family and they would you sit know, and churches sing. or yeah. they would sit and sing because they you know didn't have a million distractions like we did and and she just knows so so many songs she can't necessarily play them all still but if someone starts singing a traditional she'll know the lyrics and she'll know it you know whereas our generation that's a little bit more unusual, you know, you don't get that as much. So I think a lot of it was being passed down. More of almost an, an oral living tradition. Kind yeah. Of yeah. And I, there was a big, there was a folk boom in the fifties round. We had a thing called skiffle, which you guys <laughs> didn't take part in, which is probably quite sensible, but that was kind of a, you know, it had, it had its roots in folk, but there were people like uh, kind of Annie Briggs and, and people like that. And I forget some of the other names now I'm learning. We were talking um, about this the other day because there's a lot of, we were talking about why we weren't so obsessed with English folk like we were with American, you know, and, and we were talking about a lot of it is the language. Like now, if you listen to a lot of the old, even some of the old Fairport Convention records that Chris is currently obsessed with, so it's on 24-7, um, the language and the, you know, the things they're singing about and the way they're, they're singing about fairies and druids and he came on his steed and <laughs> Janet dyed her turtle green and all this sort of thing. Oh, it, it, that's not the real lyric. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Very <laughs> Tolkien-esque. Um, yeah. You know, it doesn't, you have to get into it. It's not, you know, it doesn't instantly, if you played that to a young teenager now, they'd be like, why are you talking about fairies? Yeah, you know, the Shirley Collins and Martin McCarthy stuff is all a bit, but, then, but this is the thing, in pop music you're told to, to, to sing in, in regular everyday kind of speaking language and because we've adopted yeah. more Americanisms, we've lost some of that. So I, I think that's part of it. But there was a folk boom in the 50s and that's what everyone was kind of really got into and there was a folk club scene. You could make an amazing living, apparently. There was over 300, 400 folk clubs up and down the UK. So you could just, that was how you'd make your living. You'd go off and sing sea shanties or whatever and you could go up and down the UK for years you know and uh i, I know you know the, the richard thompson's his dad was scottish and uh, he knew a lot of those songs and those ballads and those books and that poetry was just you know on, on the shelf and there was nothing to do on a rainy sunday or whatever except get out and read those books so i think that's how a lot of people learn like you say your mom was would just they'd, people would get around and sing we just know and, them yeah and, and share the songs that's what they would do so and could you tell me why is it that every time someone mentions skiffle they laugh <laughs> what, what what was wrong with skiffle was was it because it was oh, an attempt to sort of turn folk music into pop like what what is it what's the punchline i don't really know it just has it's just a bit silly it, it's just a bit of a neat yeah I, I i don't know why we're laughing at skiffle maybe it's just the word skiffle. i mean the word skiffle is just quite funny <laughs> it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> i've never seen anybody say it without laughing yeah <laughs> 
Well, I think it was it immediately, you know, it, it was landing at the same time as like Chuck Berry and Elvis was landing. And then you put that kind of skiffle. Is it Lonnie Donegan and bands like that? You know, Lonnie Donegan. Yeah. Yeah. Great as he is. But, you know, I think some of that that early kind of roll neck sweater fisherman friend, you know, kind of footage versus Elvis must have just been. Yeah. I think this has happened now. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Know. I don't know what I'm. Saying. I don't know my history enough about Skiffle. I would hate You're not to a say. Expert. I would hate to say anything bad about it. And also, I might love Skiffle in two years. Who knows? Yeah. You know, I'm we'll... so looking forward to this the Skiffle influenced Ida May record. Um, <laughs> the next one. I can't might, wait for that. It might happen. Yeah. So I I, I know our our time together is coming to an end, but there's a, a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about, and uh, one thing that that when I read it in your biography, it just it made me so happy was um, the day when you played a show at Amira and then flew to Louisville and played again. And of course, the one thing I thought of was Phil Collins at Live Aid, getting on the Concord, play, playing in London uh, and then getting on the Concord and flying to New York and playing again in Philadelphia. And I thought, Ida May is the Phil Collins of, <laughs> of Americana. I'm glamorous budget version. <laughs> yeah, we're the EasyJet version. <laughs> yeah, we're the Wendy's equivalent. You know. The budget Phil Collins. Yeah. But what's that about? Was that was it for the fun of seeing you could do it? Was it that you had an obligation and you didn't want to say no? Like, what is the yeah, ethic in that? We were lucky enough to get a, a tour with Blackberry Smoke, and we really wanted to make it happen. And the first two shows were in Louisville, and we had the show at Amira and we just thought we were in the habit of saying yes to everything at that point. Yeah, we've, and I, I mean, really, our remit still is just say yes, yes to everything. We'd say yes and then figure it out later. And that one was a real challenge. And it was actually a miracle. It was also my birthday. So I had like the longest birthday ever. Oh, that's great. And we used the time difference to our advantage. And we actually, we, the mad bit about the story is that we had to change from I think it was LaGuardia. Basically, we had to change airport in New York and we had like two hours, which, as you know, trying to get from an airport to another airport never works. But we managed it and we got to the venue, I think, 15 minutes before stage time. And Line just, checks uh, and off we went. I think someone gave us a shot of, there was a guy with a whiskey case and he gave us a shot of Eagle Rare and then we went on like, hello. So at <laughs> least they could do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite the culture clash from uh shoreditch you know in central london to that but it was yeah uh, yeah it was great. amazing but um, we've basically yeah. just said yes to everything so this is kind of i mean if it's physically possible we'll, we we were doing it for i feel years, like there's a time know. limit on how long we can do that sort of stuff as well so we're gonna <laughs> do as much of that as we can until we're a little more tired and we're like no way are we doing that yeah yeah you've got a little more time for that. <laughs> i have to say my my one of my favorite tracks on the record is um, is Little Liars. And I think it has the uh, the element you both spoke of earlier about the um, sort of classic instrumentation as well as the, the textures of, say, a drum machine or something like that. And um, it also actually inspired a moment where I, it, it was a bit reminiscent for, for me of, um, of Big Log, the Robert Plant song. I mean, I think it oh, was the cool. the, the, right. the drum machine element, not you know, yeah, not 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 in a duplicative kind of way, just an atmospheric kind of way. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great track. It's a great yeah, that's, track. That's one of our favorites. That was actually yeah. kind of the demo. We couldn't really beat the demo, so we we kind of worked from the demo. Yeah, we did on that one. And was, the uh, bass playing is. Nick's it's fantastic. Playing is so yeah. cool. But that was kind of yeah, t trying to combine some of that kind of JJ Kale, lo-fi kind of nature and something a bit stranger really but again yeah. i don't know what that genre is is on that track <laughs> does it happen to you often where you can't beat the demo or is that like lightning striking like how does i don't know yeah you have to be you we've learned that you have to listen to the demo because yeah the yeah. lightning striking striking thing you can very often you know go around in circles because you already had it and you won't be able to recapture that energy. Especially, really. I think, so vocally, excited. the first time you sing something, it just, you know, it's different to when you've been, like when we've been on the road and we've been singing songs, they totally change, you know, and that, that mm. moment where you first sing something, especially with that one. Yeah, and I think as well, that's another thing that we learned working on, you know, the first album was that 
not doing a lot of takes and you know what you hear on our first album and what you hear on this album is us playing these songs for the first time like mm. we've written the ink has dried we've kind of got them together still making a few mistakes but they're there and then then we start so you're really hearing them in their complete infancy you know we didn't do 47 takes maybe we should have done you know or, and we didn't actually gig any of these songs because the pandemics kind of stopped us in our tracks so what you're hearing is just what what happened then and there um and especially with little liars you know it was that was just what happened i think it required a laid-back vocal as well and i think i was excited about the song and then when we went to cut it for the record i was probably hamming it up a little bit so i'd say yeah i don't know that's an expression <laughs> there you know, it was just that laid-back sort of it needed that yeah when you when you're not thinking things things kind of sound better mm. yeah yeah, I think that's fair to say. So we're recording this a little bit in advance of when it's going to air. We're gonna we're gonna put it out closer to um to when the record comes out. But I, I have to ask, between now and then, um, will you be back on stage? Will any of these songs be performed? Do you have a do you have a, a line of sight as to when you'll be back doing what you do? Vaguely. Yeah, we have one or two festivals in the summer here and a London show and potentially one or two in the US. I think it will be sporadic and, you know, a few will be cancelled. We hope to be back in the US in July. We would love to be. Yeah. So we did have have a a show for June in America, which has been cancelled now. So, but hopefully July maybe will be in and in I, the US. I think definitely the fall, definitely unless the there's fall. another massive wave of something terrible. But yeah. hopefully the fall. Well, if you make it to the Pacific Northwest, uh, I hope you'll let me know. I would love to uh, have dinner with you or something. Um, it's so mm. wonderful to speak with you. Um, I enjoy your music so much. So thank you for making time, and uh, I wish you the best with this uh, with this release. Thank you so well, much. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks nice for having us. Lovely to talk to someone that knows the songs now. So yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and please stay safe. Yes. Yes, you, you too. too. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thank All you. Right. Bye. Thank you so much, Stephanie Jean and Chris Turpin from Ida May. Thank you, Ant Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.